Well, welcome everyone to the fifth episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management. Now we're shaking things up today, hence I'm speaking first, but we've had suggestions that myself and Michael have got too cosy. So strap yourself in and pin back your ears. It's going to be one hell of a ride. I'm Chris McGuire, Executive Editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. Michael calls me the happy clappy Chris from Chorley, the banter king of Kent, but I'm just passionate about being a force for good. My co-host is a fellow journalist and Politico, Michael Taylor. He he loves Labour, especially his chums, Andy Burnham, Angela Rayner, and Jonathan Reynolds. Hello, Michael. Hello, Chris. That's <laughs> quite a barb. You're saying it like it's a gotcha, yeah? A revelation. And I thought you asked me to do this podcast with you precisely because of my proximity to Angela, Andy, and Jonathan, or Johnny, as we call him. Yeah? Yeah. You're and now, you're, now you're saying it like it's a bad thing. No, it's not a like bad guilt thing. guilt by association. Far from it, Michael. Yeah. Far from it. You're being too defensive. No, I'm not. No, 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 no. I put my cards on the table. I, I literally intended to put my cards on the table, my Labour Party membership card, my community union membership card, and most importantly of all at the moment, my Society of Editors membership card. I am indeed, as you say, a working journalist. I believe in things that are consistent with my values. I think politics is important because it's about people making change for the better it's not a punchline it's not punch and judy it's real life couldn't agree with you more couldn't agree with you more <laughs> so now, you've got off to a bad start already chris because you're meant you're meant to be like coming in fist flying windmilling in knocking me out no the point is though is that your labor to your bones <laughs> no i'm not no whereas chris, i'm literally not, left I'm not... the labor party because of my principles for a good few years See, but right. I'm not conservative to my core. I'm not, you know, I'm not. And that's the thing is that when we review the podcast, it's hard to defend the conservatives at the moment. But today, Michael, today. Today you're going to have a go. We're going to switch. Good well, old Rishi. Not so much defending the conservatives, but basically putting some scrutiny on the uh, Labour Party. We're going to start off. Garen Davis. Here, used to work for the Daily Mail, full disclosure. Yeah, okay. I never lied. Um, Garen Davis has become the seventh Labour MP to be suspended in the current parliament after serious allegations were made against him. So we'll be asking what's happening at the heart of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer is also coming under pressure after it was revealed Labour have accepted £1.5 million from Dale Vince. Dale Vince, of course, is a major funder of the campaign Just Stop Oil. And finally, the mayor of the uh, the north of Tyne, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Driscoll, and acknowledged socialist has been barred from standing as the uh, northeast mayor, paving the way for Kim McGuinness to win it. Clearly a political decision from Kim Starmer. And I noticed, uh, uh, I noticed she had a manifesto launched at the weekend as well. And, um, you know, the local mayors, Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham, have come to the defence of their mate, Jamie Driscoll. Well, I look forward to debating all of that with you, people. We've got a great show for you today. We'll also be talking about a devolution row in Lancashire. We'll be talking clean air zones and an amusing story about a Twitter account called The Secret Tory, which I can confirm doesn't belong to Chris. Time though for a quick thank you. We simply couldn't do this podcast without the support and drive of our colleagues at What Media, who expertly produce this podcast every week. They're the kings of video content creation and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. They really do make us feel part of the team and a big, big thanks to Ellis and Charlie for doing their, to doing their duties this week. And on that, we're going to go to our first interval. 
FI Real Estate Management is not just your traditional property company. Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than 1 billion, FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality, just like us, Michael. Indeed, Chris. So we've got some exciting plans for season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management to sponsor the show and reach a growing audience, then please get in touch with Chris or I or our friends at What Media. So, Chris, lowercase c conservative, tell us why it's been a bad week for Labour. You know what, Michael? I'm gonna. I'd love to attach electrodes to your body today because I think. Will you react to what I'm about to say? And I think you will, <laughs> but we'll see, Michael. We'll see whether you can rise above it. I'll take it all it. in my stride. Well, we'll see, won't we? Last week, Geron Davis had the whip removed by the Labour Party after reports of, and I quote, incredibly serious allegations of completely unacceptable behaviour were levelled against him. Now, we talk about, when you talk about the word insight, I have no insight, and maybe I'll just leave it there, Michael. I have no insight into this allegation, and he's innocent until proven guilty, but he's currently one of seven MPs have had the whip removed from him by the Labour Party in this Parliament. It would be eight, but Neil Coyle was readmitted back into the Parliamentary Labour Party, I think, last week, following allegations he made racist comments to a British Chinese journalist, among other allegations. Now, just to be balanced, the Conservatives have removed the whip from six of their MPs, while um, played uh, Cymru and the SNP have removed the whip from one each of their MPs as well. But this is a focus on Labour. Now, Feel free to interrupt if you want, but I'm going to run through the list of Labour MPs who've had the whip removed, and I'm going to explain why they've had the whip removed. If you know the answer, tell me. Number one, Diane Abbott. Okay. Are you asking me? Well, do you know the answer? Yeah, I do. She wrote, she wrote a letter to the Observer newspaper and said it was an early draft in which she said that uh, ginger people face the same kind of racism as Jewish people. Spot on, spot on. Nick Brown, veteran MP, he had the whip removed from him. He was the chief whip on the Gordon Brown. Yeah, the Newcastle upon Tyne East MP, he had the whip removed from him September 22, after an unspecified complaint was brought against him. Um, Connor McGinn, he's the MP for a local MP actually, St. Helens North, he had the whip suspended in December 2022 following unspecified complaint. I'm not gonna ask you for the reasons if they're unspecified. Christina Reese, she's the Neath MP, she had the whip removed from her, do you know why? Uh, apparently she was accused of bullying her staff. Absolutely. Jeremy Corbyn, we all know why he had the whip removed from him. Well, we don't. You tell me. Actually, it's a good point, actually. A lot of people think it's to do with, um, you know, his views on uh, anti-Semitism. Um, but the real reason is probably the fact that um, Keir Starmer wants to put some blue sky between him and Jeremy Corbyn. And that's, that's how I read it. Is that how you read it? No, technically, the reason was Jeremy Corbyn refused to accept the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report into the Labour Party, which found that under his leadership was institutionally racist. And he said instances of anti-Semitism had been exaggerated for political effect. Absolutely. And he rather, rather stubbornly refused to budge on that point. I mean, he, he could do it at any point, but he has, he's chosen not to do so. But even if he did, they wouldn't uh, yeah. reinstate the whip. Um, Claudia Webb, she had the whip removed uh, September 2020. That's like three years ago, nearly. Um, after Webb was charged with harassment of a woman who was having an affair with her then partner, made the very unpalatable headlines. I think he might be courts. exaggerating the extent of her partner's friendship with the woman involved. Well, so. that was certainly as it was reported. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, would we invite Cl Claudia Webb onto the podcast? I'm not sure. So no. just to repeat, for the sake of balance, the Conservatives, six Conservative 
MPs have had the whip removed, including Blackpool South MP Scott Benton, after he was uh, the uh, subject of a newspaper sting. Now, are you concerned by all these negativity around the Labour Party, Michael? Well, just, just to put some further context into it, there have been three, count them all, three by-elections at which Conservative MPs have actually had to resign, which is a far more serious issue. There was obviously Owen Patterson. There was the, the, the guy in Wakefield, which forced a by-election. Uh, there was another, there's, there's, there's been others. There was a guy in Somerset who was watching tractor porn in the House of Commons. So... Yeah. You know, we're not having an arms race and a leaderboard on, on parliamentary sleaze here. But, you know, in the full interests of getting the facts right, I think the Tories are nudging ahead on that one, even though they've got more MPs to um, to draw from. Yeah, and I don't think we're trying to have a, you know, a contest in that respect. And the Conservatives have got about 350 MPs, Labour circa 200. But, but they've both had more MP suspended than most people might think. That was the point I was trying to make. So here's the thing, Chris. So you, you've lined all these things up because you got some pushback that this podcast was becoming too pro-Labour because mm. you found it increasingly difficult from your, you know, sensible middle ground, conservative, generally tend, tend to be conservative political stance that you think we've been a bit soft on Labour. So you're you're overblowing and overdoing it with all this, this series of gotchas, which you're going to try and, that you're trying to mug me on. So let me help you out. There are two different things going on here with these six pieces of evidence that you've put in front of me. Some of them are down to personal behavior, which you know more know more about them than I do, right? So obviously none of us are going to defend sexual harassment, bullying, or any of those things in the workplace, right? Let me give you a little bit of insight though on the selection of Claudia Webb to be the MP for Leicester prior to 2019. She was a staff member of Ken Livingston's team when he was mayor. So it's pretty clear where her politics lie. She's a councillor in Islington, a London borough, and she's well known on the far left in the Labour Party. So just as you're going to attempt to do a yaboo, yeah, look at Labour with Jamie Driscoll, the problem with Labour under the previous leadership of two other people you mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn, Diane Abbott, and of course, John McDonnell, is they prioritised ideology and allyship of the left over the suitability and competence of candidates to, um, to become candidates for the Labour Party. Frankly, Claudia Webb was always a disaster waiting to happen. Now, for me, you can say I'm Labour to my bones and all of those things, but for me... The problem with this country is that there are two political, two main political parties, when in reality, there should be about six. And the far left should really be under a different party led by Jeremy Corbyn. Call it peace and justice, call it whatever you want. The Ken Loach trade union socialist militant party, whatever you want. But frankly, off you trot, magic grandpa. Many of those people indeed were in a different political party prior to uh, Jeremy Corbyn taking the leadership in 2015. Three pound trots who flooded into a protest movement, not a serious party of government. So for all these dull exterior, Keir Starmer is actually strategic and ruthless and he's raised the bar of quality so he can find a mix of professional and capable people to fill senior cabinet roles so Labour can fulfil its mission which is on the back of our membership cards which is to represent people in Parliament to achieve greater change. So you try and portray me as an unthinking Labour cheerleader, but I'm remarkably untribal actually when it comes down to it. And I, as I said before, I've spent time outside the Labour Party because of those core principles. See, 
I've never portrayed you as an unthinking Labour cheerleader because you are thinking. Um, well, let's just look at the first page of the script. My <laughs> co-host is Labour to his bones. Yeah. I'm well, not. No, but I think fundamentally you are Labour. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm a left-leaning, uh, you know, I think lots of different things about lots of different subjects. And the purpose of us doing a politics podcast is to try and provide insight. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but I don't think you are an unthinking Labour cheerleader. I don't. What I do think is I think that when I put the other view forward, you get defensive. Now, that's just my view. I also think... <laughs> no, 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 no. Chris, this is how it works. You put an argument to me, I respond. If that's being defensive, that's being defensive. I'm merely responding to the... and providing some context and some insight into the, into the issues that you raise. I also think Labour in opposition don't get the same level of scrutiny as the government. Inevitably, it'd be the same if the roles were reversed. I mentioned earlier, Labour's got 200 MPs. The whip's been removed from seven of them. I think that's worthy of discussion. And I'm not alone. Charlotte Nichols, Labour MP for Warrington North, accused her own party of choosing not to act, her words, on allegations of sexual misconduct by its MPs. Maybe we should say alleged sexual misconduct by its MPs. Nicol told BBC Radio 4's World at One that there was a, quote, underlying absolutely rotten culture at Westminster mm -hmm. around sexual harassment. She said the party had been shamed into taking action against Geraint Davis, who denied any wrongdoing. You know, the Spectator's headline, which I read, was, when will Pestminster end? Um, now, it doesn't matter which party you're aligned to, it doesn't look good. That's my point. No, it doesn't. Politics attracts a certain type of personality, sadly. And um, I mean, a lot of the stuff I've done over the years has been, you know, I'm not being defensive when I say this. I, I do find the whole Westminster system pretty rotten. We'll talk about it later on with this new movement that Gordon Brown's launched and the, the statement that some of our Metro mayors have signed up to. But just as the business world has its Me Too moments, so too does politics. So come on, what you got? Uh, you, you said you were going to drive through the gears and put the boxing gloves on. Yeah, abso absolutely. Well, I'm just, I'm just literally, I'm holding your feet to the fire today, Michael. I'd like to talk to you about an entrepreneur called Dale Vince. Incidentally, and the older I get, the more I admire men's hair. I do. As my hair starts to thin, Dale Vince has got great hair. He's a founder of green energy firm uh, Ecotricity. He's the chairman of Forest Green Rovers. He's donated one and a half million to the Labour Party over the last 10 years. He's also a donor of the protest group Just Stop Oil. I read a piece today that he's increased his donation. I think he's up the ante to about £340,000. Now, obviously, Just Stop Oil, their direct actions targeted everyone from commuters to sporting events. Their um, you know orange paint and orange flares and stuff are getting all sorts of headlines. Not surprisingly, the Daily Mail and the Conservatives have jumped all over it. They're saying that Labour shouldn't be taking this money from Dale Vince. Are you worried about how it looks? Yeah, I think there's a there's a certain amount of risk for Labour that the more that the right, the thick right in particular, and the Daily Mail specifically crank up the pressure on Dale Vince and they're trying to portray him as some kind of terrorist that um, that it will become a distraction and an issue because they haven't got anything else. They can't defend the government's record. So they're constantly trying to find other ways to, to uh, and other accusations to pin on the Labour Party. So yeah, I am concerned that that's being weaponized as an issue. But in reality, I quite like Dale Vince. I mean, not just because of his hair. I used to have a policy when I was the editor of a magazine, never really to justify putting people on the front page as, as a cover shot, you know, because we're not, you know, L or GQ or anything like that. They couldn't justify it. But in the Southwest, 
we did sign off to put Dale Vince on the front cover with his dreadlocks and with a big windmill in the background because I thought he looked great. Um, I genuinely, genuinely think he's an interesting character and people like him have their place in public life and who decides to donate his money to is his thing. I don't particularly agree with the tactics of Just Stop Oil. I don't, what do you think? No, actually... The, the kids sort of relate to it a bit. Yeah, the thing is, they? I don't agree with the tactics, but he did a really good interview. He went on the front foot. Right. He did an interview, I think, on uh, the News Agents podcast. And he said, look, he said, I'm getting all this stick from the right wing. I'm going to get more. I just want to put my side of the story forward. And actually, Just Up Oil put a spokesperson on recently. And they, it's like they've had a, you know, an epiphany and they've realized they can't have real militant voices because they don't work. And this lady came on and she said, look, people said the same thing about the suffragettes all those years ago. Mm -hmm. So I understand where Just Stop Oil come from. I think they are losing the narrative, but I can't criticize the sentiment because we're living in a world where the the, the temperature and the climate is, mm. is, is going to pop. So just, just to come back to the point then, so it, it was our labor vulnerable on this issue. I think there's a really easy retort to it. And I don't think you're, you're, you're presenting this as a gotcha. I, 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 think, I think you'd like to set it up as being a bit of a collision and you want me to get on the back foot and get all really defensive. But seriously, I could just quote a series from the Tories own rogues gallery, Lubov Chernukin, former, married to Putin's former finance minister, two million quid to the Tory party, Dimitri Luce, uh, Mohammed Amersi Mohammed, you know, a corrupt telecoms chief, a cheeky half mill to the Tory party and the whole history of dark money being put into right-wing think tanks and the Tory party and the whole stuff around funding of where it came for, for the Brexit campaign. You know, I'm really surprised the Tories and the Daily Mail are going there, to be honest with you. What I will say is... And here's an yeah. extra for this story. Yeah. Uh, the guy who founded Autoglass, who's decided he's not going to give his kids any of his fortune, he's donated half a million quid to the Labour Party. Because he, he, he wants a, a Labour government. I read a story today. Um, I didn't actually just clicked on the headline. It was said, um, it said uh, entrepreneur to give £5 million pounds to Labour. That's him. That's yeah. him. Five, five, £5 million yeah. quid. Incredible. Yeah. I think there's this conversation taking place at Conservative Central Office, which is basically saying at the moment, okay, what are our attack lines to go against <laughs> Labour? And one of them is going to be the environment. They're going to say that they're talking about North Sea oil, they're talking about... And, and Keir Starmer's coming under pressure about their policy as regards to the whole green agenda. Um, and they're talking about the fact, will it, will it, you know, will the energy supply, um, you know, be fractured because of Keir Starmer? So, so clearly the agenda, you know, the green agenda is going to be part and parcel of what the Conservatives are going to attack Labour for. And I... I'm like you. I actually quite like Dale Vince. I think entrepreneurs who stand by, who've got the courage to stand by their convictions yeah. should be applauded. But so on, let's move it's on. Danger. Let's talk about Jamie Driscoll because this has become a really live This issue, is a big story. Yeah. This is a huge story. Right. Okay. So Jamie Driscoll, the mayor for North of Tyne, um, acknowledged socialists being barred from standing as the Northeast mayor, opening the way for Kim McGuinness to win. Clearly, it's a political decision. Conservative MP Simon Seven Weeks Clark described the decision <laughs> as baffling. And I wonder if he kept a straight face when he said it. John McDonnell, the MP, fellow Corbynites, described it as staggering news. Now, this has got Keir Starmer written all over it because he's clearly controlling Labour's selection lists. It reminds me very much of the decision that we've spoken about in this pod, um, I think, in the last season, which was when they left the chair of the Labour Northwest um, off the, uh, the long list, Lee Drennan, uh, in Bolton Northeast. Now, 
Is there a place for socialist politicians in Labour? And I'm going to broaden it out slightly. Why is this so significant, Michael, in terms of what's happening in the Labour Party? Why is the decision to basically kick Jamie Driscoll into the long grass so significant for the Labour Party? Now, he is, Michael's taking it so seriously. I'm taking it so seriously. I have a prop here for you, Chris. So he's, got his, about, he's got his huge wallet. You're asking about socialists in the Labour Party. This is my Labour Party membership card, kids. Okay. And it says on the back of it, the first, the first line, the Labour Party is a democratic socialist party, right? It was formed in order to represent people in Parliament and other government bodies, right? That's what the Labour Party exists to do. It's not a protest movement, yeah? It's not to go on marches. It's not to stand on picket lines, although they are subsidiary to that to that um, ultimate purpose. But the Labour Party is a democratic socialist party. So, no, I think that's, for a start, that's, that's nonsense. But let me just, if I can, picture the scene for you a few years from now. A Geordie Combined Authority, whatever it's going to be called, the Geordie Nation, something like that. Yeah. yeah. You've got the King of the North East in, in situ, maybe Jamie Driscoll. Does the Labour Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, really want a noisy clash with a left-wing mayor, you know, while he while he's the Labour um, Prime Minister? The other problem with Jamie Driscoll is he's very happy to make his excuses to you, as I know he spoke to him at the... Um, at the Convention of the North um, earlier this year about his suitability and brandish that, you know, he's created all his jobs and he's a sen sensible Labour politician. But the far left mask slips far too often. He, he shared a stage, and this is the crux issue about why I think he's been um, dis um, dis excluded from the short, from the long list to be Labour's candidate for the new Northeast Combined Authority. He shared a stage with the film director, Ken Loach, and Loach has consistently up, upset Jewish people with his comments that aren't compatible with Starmer's intention to rip out anti-Semitism by its roots. It was the first thing he said when he was elected leader. So if the candidate was for a parliamentary selection, and I think this is the thought process that uh, the Labour NEC and Keir Starmer's office have done, is if Jamie Driscoll was standing for a, a Labour nomination for, I don't know, Hazel Grove to be the Labour candidate, would his previous behaviours have excluded him. Now, they did, as you said, for Lee Drennan in Bolton Northeast and various other people who would identify with that wing of the Labour Party. And the statement from the party was the, the party holds its candidates to a very high standard during this process. Some applicants did not meet the threshold required to proceed. I read a piece really? by Helen Pidd in The Guardian today in which she described Jamie Driscoll as the last Corbynista in power. But, That's uh, fair. Well, basically say anyone linked to uh, Jeremy Corbyn. and yeah. they shared Jeremy Corbyn's leadership campaign. Yeah, I mean, they've obviously... In but I asked him about the fact that he was a socialist and he said, um, you know, I've got values, but look at what I've achieved. I mean, you know, generated, created yeah, yeah. nearly 5,000 jobs. And I, well, it I was... sort of dispute that, but yeah. It, but, but, but his decision to share the stage with Ken Loach was, was naive at best. What mm -hmm. I thought was quite interesting over the weekend, I mentioned it earlier, Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, both written to the, um, the NEC, the National Executive, asking for him to be allowed to appeal, for Jamie Driscoll to be allowed to appeal. Unite have said it's it's wrong. I don't think they're going to get anywhere. Your mate, Johnny Reynolds, he came out of the weekend. Um, they're not saying too much, but they're saying just enough to, 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 to hint at what you've mentioned about it's to do with Ken Loach. Um, going to move it on. I mentioned Charlotte Nichols earlier. 
Warrington North MP. You bet her, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. She's to the left of the party. Um, she issued a statement earlier last week, actually. It followed a controversial tweet that she posted over the weekend. So many music festivals taking place in our region. So many concerts as well. Yeah. She attended She attended the Neighbourhood Weekend at Music Festival. I wasn't there, actually. I couldn't make it. Um, <laughs> the MP witnessed chance of, as you know, don't like to swear, but F-U-C-K... The Tories. Yeah. The Tories. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, do, you know the, do you know that, what song that's from? Um, well, got you know I don't. Pig bag by pig bag. But anyway, carry no, on. You know I don't. No. Um, so that was during the set of somebody called Jamie Webster, who incidentally I've never heard of either. <laughs> so she tweeted, big chance of F-U-C-K the Tories for Jamie Webster at this uh, neighbourhood weekend at yeah. music festival. Yeah. And I can't lie. I absolutely love to see it. Love you, Warrington. So that is what the Warrington North MP, Charlotte Nichols, tweeted. Full disclosure, any regulars of the show know that I don't like swearing as well. That's not the, uh, that's not the language of a festival goer. That's the language of an MP. Surely that can't be right, Michael. Even you've got to admit that. <laughs> so I, I consulted uh, two of our younger viewers. Hi there, Louis and Adam. Um, and the exact phrase when I put the whole circumstances of this to to me was, ah, oh, no, not that scouse gimp, <laughs> right? So that tune, Chris, right? You mentioned there's lots of festivals, lots of gatherings of young people. That tune and that chant is a feature at many festivals and gigs, including the Neighbourhood Weekender in Warrington at the weekend. The kids, right, hate the Tories, especially the scouse kids, Right, that this uh, this artiste is particularly keen to encourage. So she's hardly going to ask them to stop, is she? And it is on her patch. But um, doesn't need to tweet it though, does she, Michael? It's up to her. It's up yeah. to her. I wouldn't do it, mm. but you know. Now you're going to turn it on me now, aren't you? You're going to try and get me with a gotcha. <laughs> Why would I try and do that? Yeah. You know, your your job your job's difficult enough trying to defend the Conservative government in record and uh, their record. But you have asked me lots of questions about Labour and I think we established long, long ago, to be fair, Chris, that you're no kind of Tory really. So I don't expect you to defend Boris Johnson, but let's look at what's been going on since Johnson announced that he's handing over the unredacted WhatsApp messages. Yeah, right, taps nose. Do you seriously think that Boris Johnson doesn't have more than one phone where he texts all these mistresses and various other mates and donors and all those sorts of people? I just don't believe it myself. But he is apparently, dating back to May 2021, sending those messages to the COVID inquiry, bypassing the government, which has refused to hand them over. He's playing games. He's, to quote a phrase, on manoeuvres. Now, last week we called out Johnson for being on manoeuvres, right? So yeah. there's clearly a bigger play going on. What do you reckon? Well, I was just talking before you arrived, actually, and we mentioned Boris Johnson, and we're all of the same view. I mean, he is. Pinocchio could sue him <laughs> if you accused him of being like Pinocchio. He, he thinks he's being stitched up by Rishi Sunak in a cabinet office. So he's trying to put the court, the ball back in uh, Rishi Sunak's court. Now, if Johnson was so magnanimous, which is what he's trying to do, and it's actually quite interesting, when he landed on his latest trip to the US and his media entourage tried to prevent a journalist asking him a question, he said, no, come on, come on. And he gave a question 
quote, he wants to use the media, which he does, to be fair, quite effectively. Um, and um, if he was being so magnanimous, why did he wait to the last minute to announce he was handing over his WhatsApp messages to the head of the inquiry, Baroness um, uh, Hallett? I mentioned before, I covered a murder case over 20 years ago, just to show my age. And um, Baroness ha- uh, Hallett, Heather Hallett, um, she was the judge. She yeah. is phenomenal. She yeah, is not really impressive by all accounts. Isn't she she yeah. is going to take no mess in, especially from uh, Pinocchio Johnson. A couple of things to mention. The, the thing is, Chris, they used to say this about Sue Gray, didn't they? You know, someone of unimpeachable yeah. credentials, but they soon turn on them if they don't play to their tune. It doesn't suit them. They'll struggle to pin anything uh, on Baroness Hallett. A couple of things to mention. Johnson said he would like to send the messages predating April 2021. Remember, we went into lockdown in March 2020. So, um, yeah, exactly. so, so the 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 unredacted messages he's sending are a year after lockdown started. So. Unfortunately, all his other messages are on another phone, which he can no longer access because of safety issues. Apparently, safety concerns were raised over the phone after it was revealed the number had been freely available on the internet for 15 for 15 years. Apparently, there was a website actually said, if you want to ring Boris Johnson, here's his mobile number. And it was. So the fact that Johnson's been warned um, that the public funding that he is outrageously receiving for his legal representation to defend him in this COVID inquiry, the fact the government has said to him that he undermines that and it could be withdrawn if he keeps having a go at the government tells mm. you everything you need to know about Pinocchio Johnson. <laughs> is that his new name? Yeah, I think we should yeah. call him Pinocchio Good. Johnson. Right, so you want to ask me about the civil service now? Yeah, and the point I was going to say is that Boris Johnson thinks that he's being stitched up by Rishi Sunak and the Cabinet Office, and we're hearing more and more again, Simon Case's name's coming up in conversations all the time, um, that, that, the, that the civil service is getting too powerful. Michael Gove, the levelling up minister, has called civil servants opposed to Brexit, the blob, and uh, maybe he was talking about uh, Boris Johnson, maybe he called him the blob, uh, and a succession of MPs and ministers say they've been hampered by the civil service. Do you think the civil service is too powerful? No, I don't. And I think Michael Gove having a go at the blob, he did this when he was education secretary. You know, it's a demeaning, dehumanising phrase. And I think it speaks to the desperation of the Tory party once again um, to work in cahoots with their colleagues in the print media to just denigrate the hardworking behaviours of people in the civil service. I think it's it demeans them. It, it should be beneath them. I think someone like Gove doesn't even believe it himself. And, you know, to say that I saw a whole lot of commentary on the on Brexit recently that, you know, somehow it's the blob resisting the opportunity for free ports and all the rest of it. I think it was actually on Ben Houchin's LinkedIn page, which he hasn't managed to block me from yet. Um, but, you know, political commentary likes to focus on the he says, she says of PMQs and the debates going on around laws. And then it sort of stops. But the reality is there is no legislative timetable of any substance, really. The Tories haven't got a vision, a plan for the country beyond their five pledges, one of which is stopping the small boats. Another one is something that they don't actually have any control over, which is um, halving inflation, which, again, they've they've been really mealy-mouthed about that one. Um, It's not cutting prices of food in supermarkets. It's actually the rate at which food prices and lots of other things are going up and and mortgages and all all the rest of it. And Jeremy Hunt, to be fair, is quietly getting on in the background and denying extra spending pledges to government departments so they can make their usual gimmicky statements about levelling up and all the other things that they've failed to deliver on from their 2019 majority. 
But I, all I would do, Chris, is I'd say this to you again, is there's a rich seam of material at the moment looking at how politics works. Ian Dunn has got a book out about why the civil service in Westminster doesn't work, why the system is grinding. We talked about the bad behaviour and the toxic culture and the and the behaviour of MPs and, and special advisors in Parliament and the culture of sexism. Lisa Nandy's got an excellent book out, which I'm more than happy to give you. Alistair Campbell, who I know you've been in contact with recently, we want to interview him about his book, about people getting involved in politics and changing things. I think there's a real appetite for change. So, you know, let's, let's look in those directions rather than, you know, just feeding off this, this really negative chip chip agenda that um, that people like Michael Gove should be, this should be better than that really. Yeah, Rory Stewart um, on his podcast is uh, talks about his relationship with civil servants, and uh, that's quite insightful. You know, there are some. You, really you don't believe them. You don't believe this nonsense about the blob any more than Michael Gove no, does. No, do you? no, no. What I do think though is that there is a danger that the civil service should be seen and not heard, and I think there's a the problem. Yeah, they're becoming a story. Um, Lancashire. I want to talk to you about Lancashire. Yeah, yeah. Come on. So what's so, been going on? So I was in Asda. I was in Asda because <laughs> I don't I don't shop at these uh, you know these uh, waitresses can't afford to, and I saw a front page of the Lancashire Reading Post, and it was "Don't freeze us out," and there was a picture of uh, Deanna Davison, who is the Leveling Up Minister, and it had been photoshopped outside County Hall in Preston, and I thought to myself, "That's interesting." So I read it. So Lancashire's been on an eight-year journey to get devolution powers. I live in Lancashire. Davison's due to head to uh, the Red Rose County later this month, uh, along with a load of Whitehall mandarins to uh, to discuss it now on the table is a plan to create a combined Can I just stop you there that yeah. is pure local newspaper journalism in action yeah yeah whitehall mandarins head for the res rose county yeah i love that yeah i might have inserted a rose <laughs> red rose county <laughs> it's good, bit, no, like but it. they use the word mandarins yes so on the table there's this plan it's called a combined county authority and it's basically a fudge because unfortunately lancashire doesn't want the same sort of devolution deal that we've got in manchester and uh, liverpool mainly because they don't want an elected mayor because they could never agree on the right or the same person so under government rules only so-called top-tier councils can be members of a combined county authority so in lancashire case that would be the unitary authorities that would be the county council and blackpool and then Blackpool with Darwin. So that's three councils. Blackburn with Darwin. Absolutely. Yeah. The problem is Lancashire's dozen district councils like Chorley, South Ribble, Preston, filed, and they wouldn't be part of this formal setup. So most of those local authorities are keeping their powder dry, but two of them are broken ranks. Paul Foster's the uh, Labour leader of South Ribble Borough Council. He's condemned what he describes as a breach of trust by the county counterparts, by his county counterparts, while Preston City Council's leader, Matthew Brown's even been more, uh, mean, even more attacking than that. He's questioned what benefits Preston will get if they haven't got a seat at the top table. Now, there's a phrase that stood out for me in the Lancashire Evening Post article. I thought it was a really good one. He said, the county has been uh, has only been able to progress at the speed of the most circumspect of its constituent parts. Wow. That's the problem. Who that, said that? It, well, it was written by the uh, journalist for the Lancashire Evening Post, cool. whose name remains um, nameless because I didn't write it down. Um, that's the problem with Lancashire. You've got so many, such a fragmented county, such a sort of fragmented county that, that they can't agree on it. And I don't think they ever will. What's your view? Yeah. When I first saw the news that Lancashire County Council was ready to talk terms, which is the headline I used on the business desk, I must admit, I was a little friction of surprise because if there's one thing that Lancashire politicians can always be relied upon to do, it's to think small. 
and think parochial. So it seemed to me it was a rare outbreak of bigger thinking by Councillor Philip Williamson, the leader of Lancashire County Council, a conservative who strangely, uh, for, for my political persuasion, I, um, I quite admire her actually. I think she's quite sensible and pragmatic and, uh, and I, always, I always enjoy her contributions to debates in public life. I might be proved wrong if anyone from Lancashire actually knows her and she's your county councillor, then put me right by all means. But yeah, right on cue, here come the townies. Okay. And right on cue, we're going to our first interval. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that. LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. Or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. Welcome back to part two of the Northern Spin podcast. Before we go to our section, anything to see here, I want to discuss an amusing story that broke last week, Chris. You're going to have to give me some insight on this because I don't spend as much time on Twitter, maybe as you do. Yeah. But there was a Twitter account called The Secret Tory. It, be, it had nearly 200,000 followers. And there was a lot of speculation that it either belonged to you or an anonymous Conservative MP. But it turned out it belonged to a personal trainer from Yorkshire called Henry Morris. Now, the satirical account clearly is very staunchly anti-conservative and it developed a bit of a cult following. So how did he get exposed and uh, what, what do you think about it? The thing is, I think on the one hand, this could be filed under the category tittle-tattle until you consider this story about his big reveal was reported by the BBC, pretty much all the mainstream media and social media. A lot of politicians got involved as well. And what it does is it underlines the power of the influencer and social media, especially with and the ability to engage with young voters as well. And I've said it before, political parties ignore them at their peril. In 2022, this guy, you know, who called himself the secret Tory, he released a book, The Diary of a Secret Tory MP, bracket almost, true stories from the heart of British politics, which was widely endorsed by political commentators. Really, really interesting. Um, he was of the view that he was, out, he was about to be outed anyway, so he took the plunge. I mean, but you see the images of this guy, he's a personal trainer, he's got tattoos down both arms, et cetera, et cetera. He clearly is far removed from being a Tory as you could possibly get but he got a lot of airtime and uh, really interesting there's another Twitter account called The Week in Tory by a guy called Russ in Cheshire and he, I think he spun a book out of it as well. And he basically just describes all the things the Tories have done in the course of a week and that's very effective you should well, it, it might give you trauma, but uh, it's certainly very informative but, but it's, very well argued. But humour is such an effective medium. Yeah, it is. It is. Right, what else have you got for me in the anything to see here? Can yeah, we've got loads to rattle through, actually, so I'm not going to waste any time. So last week, can you believe Mark the year since the clean air zone was supposed to come into force across Greater Manchester? I drive, I drive down the M61 um, two or three times a week, and there's a big sign up there about the uh, clean air zone, except there isn't one. Daily charges for some of the vehicles which pollute the region's roads the most were set to start from May the 30th, 2022. 
Anything to see here? Because um, and will Andy Burnham? Do you think ever have the courage of his convictions to bring it back to the table? Well, he he would. Well, we can ask him when he comes on the podcast, which he's agreed to do in July. So that's uh, very exciting news. Now we've spoken about this before, and we need probably just to rewind a little bit and think about the the, the whole circumstances around the clean air zone. Andy, I think, would argue that the government required by law all local councils to come up with a plan in areas where the levels of nitrous oxide were dangerously high, right? That was a requirement. I think he's been quite vocal about that and introduced things like uh, low emission buses, which are going to be based in Stockport, which is one of the great achievements for the authority that I used to work for uh, to, to secure the funding for green buses. Um, but the whole point of it was that this was the government requiring uh, councils to do that, not um, uh, not his great mission and his vision to penalise white van man, which is how it then got portrayed. Yeah, I'd make a point as well yeah. that I'm not going to make any cheap shots at Andy Burnham in the sense that, like, my wife's got asthma, my youngest daughter's got asthma as well, so they're using inhalers. Thousands of people are dying, you know, every year from air pollution as well. But um, the danger is, I think, potentially this could, this could become a real white elephant for Andy Burnham. And you see these signs that are covered up. Clearly, that costs money. And there are other towns and cities around the country, places like Bath, which I visited, Birmingham, Bradford, Bristol, Portsmouth, Sheffield. Even I don't really understand Sheffield. It just says when you go on the M1, slow down because we're going through an air zone and you have to drop your mileage to about 60 miles an hour in Tyneside. They've got clean air zones. So I just think it's one to watch. And it's definitely one I'm going to pick his brains on when he comes on the podcast. Yeah, I think the idea was why did Greater Manchester have a plan for a clean air zone that just that covered the whole of Greater Manchester, right? Coming into the whole of the city region, you know, when you drive along the A6 past Lime Park and into High Lane, for instance, or, you know, I don't know which point down the M61, it suddenly becomes Greater Manchester as you head towards Bolton from Chorley, whatever it is. Yeah. That, that I think that was the, the issue rather than maybe Manchester city centre, parts of Salford, Berry New Road, things like that, where the levels of nitrous oxide are particularly high. I think Andy's plan, therefore, underestimated the backlash and the government's uh, about face on the plan when they basically turned against his plan that they came back with, I think then started getting him into some political hot water. The covered up signs, I agree. I think they're a bad look for him, as rightly or wrongly, they are associated with his leadership. The campaign against the clean air zone personalized it and made it, you know, they called it the Burnham tax. It was effective. It was noisy. It was a bit Brexity in tone, if I'm honest. And I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a lot, there's these roundabout rebels as well um, in different parts of Greater Manchester protesting about all sorts of things. You know, the clean air zone, 15 minute cities, vaccinations. You know, it's a conflation of lots of different issues that's mobilized a very vocal and noisy group of people. But what it does do is it really calls into question the ability of any government, local, national, regional, city, whatever, to introduce measures that will hit people in the pockets that are designed ultimately to change behavior to protect the lungs of, you know, your daughters, for instance. Can I ask you a question? Mm, it's not sure. something we've discussed, but I was just thinking as we were talking about it. So when the congestion charge was suggested in Manchester, um, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you 2008. Know, yeah. And it was Richard Lees was seen as the architect of that, wasn't he? Was, he? Yeah. So he got demonized over that, didn't he? And you look at um, Andy Burnham's come up with the idea of the clean air zone. And the way I see it is that Andy Burnham's a lot more likable than Richard Lees. And he hasn't got, 
a lot of critics in the media in the north. That's the way I see it. So even something like this, which I think looks like a white elephant for Andy Burnham, he's not getting a lot of flack, is he? He does. If you, you look below the line on uh, on a lot of social media and you look on Facebook, um, there's people that I know that live in the sort of rural outposts of Greater Manchester who are quite angry about the clean air zone. And they were actually put off by the vociferousness of the campaign against it. And I know that it took up a lot of bandwidth in the, in the very limited capacity that Andy Burnham's team have got. Mm. in dealing with it. And he, he required the council leaders, one of which I used to work for, he, he, he required rather a lot of backing from them to, you know, to lean in and take some, some of the blows for him. Going to pick, uh, going to carry on with Andy Burnham. Uh, he was in the news a lot last week. Uh, Andy, Burnham, uh, yeah, Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan have appealed to the government not to scale back their plans for high speed two alongside Manchester City Council leader, Councillor Bev Craig, who we're also trying to get on this podcast and Camden Council leader, Councillor Georgia Gould, who we're not going to get on this podcast. The mayor's outlined the importance of a Manchester Piccadilly underground station and that high speed two that connects high speed two with a, with a London terminus at Euston, not six miles out outside the city centre. I think that's quite important. Do you think there's much to see here? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is quite important. It's always interesting when different politicians from different regions who usually stand up for their own region kind of make a national infrastructure play. The, he the headline we use was build it once and do it right. I still don't understand for the life of me, to be honest, though, why HS2 wasn't built from the north downwards if its main reason and purpose is to benefit the north not london you know it, it very quickly becomes a bit of a funnel down which more and more power and wealth and talent drains down to london final andy burnham one before we talk about the cbi um over the weekend the uh, i read a story of the first buses in greater manchester's newly locally controlled system have been handed over there's a picture of andy burnham sitting behind the wheels of a bus it's a um this is a huge step for andy burnham because as in september the region will become the first area outside london to have a regulated bus system since privatization in 1986 something um so and i think that's uh, and you know i mentioned before i thought andy burnham would go down to to london and sit in a uh, sitting in a Labour government. I'm not sure now. And a lot of it's to do with the bus system as well. Now, something you predicted a while ago is starting to come to pass. There's a big vote this week, actually. The scandal hit lobby group, the CBI, has revealed plans to cut jobs as it struggles with a fallout from allegations of rape and sexual assault against staff. I read an open letter today, which has been signed by 13 businesses. I think Siemens were one, um, saying that they hope the CBI doesn't uh, doesn't fall on its sword and there's still a future for it. What do you think about that? And is there anything to see here? There's definitely something to see here, yeah. So there's a big vote tomorrow. And I think- That's it, Tuesday for the benefit Tuesday, of that yeah, yeah. It's Monday today. The big vote is on Tuesday. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think uh, that the other big thing that happened is the British Chambers of Commerce um, have, issued, have started something called the New Business Council. We reported that on the business desk uh, this morning, Monday. And I think that's a real shot across the bows of the CBI. That I think the CBI is finished, Chris, honestly. I can't see how it can recover from this. There's even talk about changing its name, changing its governance. How on earth they're going to get people to pay, businesses to pay the amount that they're asking of them to be, to be ineffective? They just won't. They won't pay for the privilege of just being in a club that has no clout. And without access to ministers, without access to opposition politicians, without being able to go on international trade missions, there is no point to the CBI. And if the British Chambers of Commerce, which also includes a network of um, 
of district chambers like Greater Manchester. Now, I'm led to believe that the Chambers of Commerce nationally is very patchy, right? Yeah. In Greater Manchester, it's run by a guy called Clive Memmer and his deputy, Chris Fletcher. They have a whole team. They deliver all sorts of different services and they're real go-to people. I, I you know, I, I, I think they're credible, right? I'm not sure that's the case all over the country. And, you know, a strong chain is only as strong as its weakest link. I've got this feeling that the CBI are at the same moment that the news of the world were with the Millie Dowler phone hacking scandal. Wow. And you look at it and say, I'm not sure there's any way back. And once you have that conversation, um, then I'm not sure there is any way back. Yeah, I've dealt with trade associations and business organizations all in my professional life. They have to be trusted and have authority. But why on earth will anyone ever take the CBI seriously again? Mm. Anyway, one for you, Chris. It's nearly a year since the rail stri strikes started. There was more disruption on Friday and Saturday, especially felt in Manchester with supporters going down to the FA Cup final at Wembley, where City beat United, as predicted on this podcast. Yeah. 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 By both of us. Absolutely. Although I think I said 2 0, didn't I? Did I say 2 1? 3 1. 3 1. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did check. Yeah. 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 City, yeah. City should have hammered them, actually. Yeah, they should. Should have been all over by the counting. Um, also, there was three big concerts in Manchester over the weekend the Arctic Monkeys, Elton John, and Coldplay. Yeah. And yet, you know, people had to crawl in by any different means to the city centre. So, the train strikes, um, lots of disruption. What do you think is going on? Well, Will they ever end? We come at it from slightly different um, sides of the political spectrum in terms of strikes. You know, I think Mick Lynch, the boss of the IMT union, I think he's forced himself and the union into a corner. I really do. So he's seen as the face of the rail unions. But it's worth making a point, and it's a point that you've made to me, that the strike extends beyond the IMT union. There are sort of two disputes at play here, one of which has sort of been resolved. But from a public perspective situation, people just see rail strikes. Um, as far as I can see, this uh, latest rail strike is more about terms and conditions. The problem is, even a really good communicator like Mick Lynch, and he is, struggles to articulate his message across to a fed up public uh, who see these strike accidents coinciding with major events. And they keep saying it wasn't the plan to coincide it with the Eurovision. It wasn't the plan to coincide it with the FA Cup. And they can make a legitimate point to say that throughout the course of the summer, there's always events on. But here's the point. The rail service is poor even on the days when there isn't a strike action. My wife, she's with me today. Um, she she caught a train last week from um, from Piccadilly and the train stopped because they didn't have a guard on board. Now, I don't care what happens. People are voting with their feet. I never use the trains because they are so unreliable. And, and I think this is the problem that the rail service are going to have. I also think it's the problem that, you know, like Royal Mail have got. We're getting problems with Royal Mail where we were in the house. My wife was waiting for a delivery. We were in the house. Suddenly, gets the thing slipped through the door. You weren't in. Um, we'll come back tomorrow to deliver it. And the service that's being provided is second rate. That's just my view, Michael. You might disagree. No, well, what's to disagree with? You're, you're stating facts from personal experience. I can't, I'm not going to dispute those facts. But I think what one thing that does scream out from that, you don't use the trains anymore because the service is diabolical. That's not on Mick Lynch. That's actually on the very people that Mick Lynch is having, is banging his head against a brick wall, trying to negotiate with. You know, I don't want there to be 
train strikes. I wish they weren't happening. I wish the railways were better run. I wish the people working on them, who in my experience are routinely helpful, friendly and warm, lovely people who want to serve the public and get work satisfaction and get a fair deal for putting in a fair day's work. The disputes are between the unions and the RDG, the rail delivery group, the body representing the train operators. And that remains at a stalemate. Aslef, the other union, not McLynch's union, rejected uh, an offer of a 4% pay rise, which they called derisory. Their General Secretary, Mick Whelan. Now, why are all rail industry trade union leaders called Mick? It's a great name for a union leader. It is. It is. Maybe I should have gone into that yeah. with my... I used to be yeah. Mick, you know. Anyway, yeah. um, you know, it's a really... I think some of Mick Lynch's slightly communist rhetoric is a bit overblown from time to time and a bit cringe, if I'm honest. But the brass tacks of this dispute is it's a really, really badly run industry. I read a piece in the, one of the papers at the weekend. There's two private, I didn't know about this, complete revelation to me, but there's a train company that runs just a really single service from Hull to London, painted blue, these trains. They were, they've been running during the disputes with, with train drivers. They can't run when there's, you know, the tracks are closed due to signaling and stuff like that. 37 quid for a return trip from Hull to London. It's a, it's a much more limited service. They've been able to offer good terms to their staff. They don't, they don't suffer strikes, even though they do negotiate with the same trade unions. And there's something about the train operating companies that's fundamentally broken, I think. And this is going to be another attack line for the Conservatives with Labour. They are absolutely going to go after the uh, Labour's association with the unions. Yep. Uh, one more I want to pick you on, uh, pick you up on before we go to our manoeuvres. So Gordon Brown, the Welsh First Minister, Mark uh, Drakeford, lost his wife very recently, very sad. Andy Burnham, who we've mentioned 93 times <laughs> on this show today. Um, Tracy Braben joined uh, the Alliance for Radical Democratic Change in Edinburgh. I don't know who comes up with the names for these get-togethers, but I don't like the Alliance for Radical Democratic Change. <laughs> they called for more devolution and the abolishment of the House of Lords. Um, I think it's, if you've got Gordon Brown at an event like that, it gives it credibility. Anything to see here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've signed up for it. Um, I went onto the website. It seems like, I think the main focus of it is about um, a radical Scotland as part of the union. I think that's its tactical play. I think that's where Gordon Brown is on manoeuvres and he's trying to find people in Scotland to back the union um, sorry, people from England to back the union in an alliance of people who want to rewire the country and do it differently. So you take, you know, a powerful and charismatic retail politician like Andy Burnham stood next to Gordon Brown. It's going to be better than the optics of Gordon Brown stood next to, you know, David Cameron and George Osborne in the 2014 referendum, which really was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it? A long term for the Labour Party. Do you not think, though, that, you know, the fact that you're getting Northern MPs joining forces to discuss stuff in Scotland and, and, and you, know, the Welsh, you know, the Welsh First Minister. I think the idea of independence in Scotland is so far removed at the moment. No, this, I think they still have to win the argument and Labour need to be on a trajectory of, being, of having a positive vision for Scotland that resonates with people who've still got that grievance, you know, that Scotland is badly treated by the Westminster system. Um, I remember speaking to Andy Burnham about this some time ago. Um, you know, he's been in contact with with politicians like Anna Samwa, the Labour leader in Scotland, and you know the potential Labour leaders of Edinburgh, Dundee, and Scotland, and Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Dundee councils. 
that actually the SNP is centralised and controlling. They're the problem. And I think I think it's spotted that moment of weakness for the SNP. That's where I think this is happening. Anyway, quick, another one on Gordon Brown. He's been down on the Wirral recently. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's supporting the, um, the battle by... Um, Rural South MP, Alison McGovern, whose constituency is going to be abolished, and she is standing to be the MP for Birkenhead, which is a neighbouring constituency, which I think her house where she lives in New Ferry is you know, becoming part of that. So Gordon Brown launched her re-election campaign to be the Labour candidate from uh, from her house in, um, in, in, in on the Wirral. To be honest. Alison's yeah. great. I'm a big supporter of her. Her and her husband, uh, who I used to work with at Manchester Met University, really, really frighteningly clever people. And they both used to work for Gordon Brown. Well, that, I mean, I can't see anybody other than Labour winning every single, you know, parliamentary seat in the next general election in yeah, Liverpool. But, yeah, but Chris, it's not, it's not about Labour winning. It, this, again, comes back to the point about selection battles. Oh, I didn't realise yeah, that. Yeah, right. sorry. It's, no. uh, Ali might not get in in Birkenhead because, you know, there'll, there'll be an alternative candidate that will be supported by trade unions and the local Labour Party's probably a lot more left-wing than she is. So that's really telling then. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah. That Brown's that's what's going on there. Going to talk on manoeuvres now. Yeah. So the first one we're going to go to is this group, a self-styled, I like that phrase, self-styled Tory growth group. So, okay. So I just mentioned this event that we had in uh, Edinburgh last week, uh, where Andy Burnham turned up. It was called the Alliance for Radical Democratic Change. The Conservatives, who aren't ones for thinking outside the box, have just called it the Tory growth group. Um, I think they're all on manoeuvres. So they're basically a group of about 50 MPs and four ex-ministers. They've made some headlines last week. They've called for a ban on inheritance tax, Liz Seven Weeks Trust, and the Daily Telegraph are pushing for it. It's worth explaining a bit of background about inheritance tax because with the best will in the world, I'm not second guessing you or me, we're unlikely to be in that category. It's aimed at the super rich. Inheritance tax is paid when a person's estate is worth more than £325,000 when they die. Maybe. I've just been on the calculation. And they they do leave everything above the threshold to their spouse, civil partner, charity, or a community amateur sports club. So inheritance tax applies to a small number of very wealthy people. They think, I read a piece, I think Dan Needle did a lot of stuff over the weekend, the tax expert, talking about the top 7%. Uh, most of us would see no benefit from scrapping it, but the super wealthy Tory voters would. Uh, and that, the suggestion is, that would give them an advantage <coughs> over the Dems, especially in the southern seats where it's quite, you know, closely fought. What do you think? Are they on manoeuvres? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. What about your attempt to be a conservative? Have you been doing any more reading that I suggested no, you do? No, no, no. And the thing is, you see, and you made a point in the first part of the show, which I agreed with again. You said the problem we've got is there are only two major parties. Now, let's say you've got the Lib Dems, that's three. But really, there should be a far left for the socialists in the Labour Party, and there should be a far right for the conservatives as well. There isn't one group, there isn't one Conservative Party, it's a group of fragmented parties. And I think the Tory growth group and these 50 MPs who are at one side of the spectrum, they should have their own party. <laughs> yes. Fragment. Who else have you got on manoeuvres? Come on, Tories, fragment. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Rachel Reeves, actually. The M- She's a Leeds MP. So the New Statesman, my, my weekly magazine of choice, which I'm more than happy to donate my copies to you once, I, once I've read them and discarded them. Uh, on their way to the recycling. They could be recycled in Chorley instead yeah. of Stockport. Yeah, I'd read them. I'd read them. Um, yeah, so anyway, the New Statesman did a list of the most important people on the left, and Rachel Reeves was number one, ahead of Keir Starmer. Andy Burnham was 12th, by the way. Um, no item on this podcast this week is complete without a reference to the King of the North. So she's been in the US. 
She's been meeting more business leaders. She's a serious thinker and she understands the British psyche and the importance of aspiration more than any other Labour politician, I think. So much of Labour's thinking is about how two different types of people might perceive the parties at the next election. And I'll summarise them really briefly. Dino and Mavis, right? So Dino, he lives in a new build in Bookshaw Village. He works in sales. He has a German car, family, holidays, ambition. His mortgage and his other borrowing costs have gone up. He's been nudged into a higher tax bracket when he hits his bonus. His job is probably quite insecure because he's not been hitting his bonus quite as much. His disposable income is squeezed. So he's not particularly bothered about things like transgender issues or even racism and stuff like that. He thinks, yeah, whatever. He has mates in the forces, so he's probably got a Help for Hero sticker in his car as well. He's probably quite patriotic. Mavis, on the other hand, stands for middle-aged volatile insurgents. They're people in their 30s and 50s, university educated, environmentally woke, if you want to use that phrase, liberal, professional, educated. They absolutely hate Brexit. They aren't conservative because they don't see that the conservatives give them anything to conserve. You know, they've not necessarily built up any equity in the way that people in their 70s want to protect the British way of life or stop being overrun by immigrants or change or anything like that. Now, balancing these two groups is tricky. And I think Rachel Reeves speaks to both of them really effectively at the same time. And I have to give due credit for the, for some really interesting pieces that I read in the last few days, one by Andy Marr in the New Statesman about Mavis and Tom McTagan, a website called Unheard, who described um, the Dino of this world. I mean, it's, I, I think these demographic groups and how political parties align around them is really, really interesting. And I think that's, if you look, look below the surface, if we want to give people insights on this podcast and groups of people in the North, then I think I think that's been really, really, it's quite interesting and well worth delving into a bit more in future. What do you think? I agree with you. I think if you look at what um, Boris Johnson did in 2019, they identified a disenfranchised red wall voter who was teed off with a Labour Party and said, we're going to go after you. Now, I don't know what you call that voter. It's somewhere between Dino and Mavis. Let's call him... Working to man. Yeah, working to man. Yeah, yeah. But they had a really clear message. I think the mistake that the Labour Party would make is to identify one target audience because there isn't. There, um, that's right. Yeah. Because it's geographical. Exactly. So Exactly no, my point. I like Rachel Reeves a lot. I think she's got a good sense of humour. She comes across well, self-deprecating. I like West Streeting as well. I think the problem is, I think the talent pool in the shadow cabinet, Johnny Reynolds is doing a good job. Um, Angela Rain is doing a good job. But I think if you go much further down... What do you think of Lisa and Andy? Do you like her? I think she's doing a decent job. Um, I think she's doing a decent job as opposed to where I say Rachel Reeves and West Street. I see them as, as secretaries of state because they talk, they're talking about the next battle. I think they're serious politicians and they get their briefs as well. One of the problems that the Conservative Party have got is they keep changing secretaries of state. So you've got five or six foreign secretaries, five or six chancellors in a very short period of time. Rachel Reeves and West Street, I don't know how long they've been in their shadow uh, briefs. But it feels like a long time. And the work they're doing now, going over to the US, speaking to politicians in the US, you know, in West Eating's case, taking on the unions now, that that all uh, augurs well. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll start hearing some policies from them soon as well. I think they've got plenty of policies, Chris, as you okay. well know. And okay. on that note, we're going to go to an interval.
I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to part three of the Northern Spin podcast. We call this the fun bit, where I try and make Chris a little bit more Northern, but also sometimes a few business stories creep in. So there's a few that broke last week. EG from Blackburn, the Issa brothers, sold a lot of their assets to Asda, which they also own. And really it was about keeping their de Asda's debt under control and, and EG's debt's under control. It's the most indebted conglomerate of businesses I've, I've ever come across. Decra, a pharmaceuticals business in Cheshire, got sold, the biggest private equity deal this year. And then, Chris, we've seen the demise of the vehicle data company, Weijo. It's not looking good for Weijo. We are hoping that it's not the complete death of Weijo as well. It's worth making that point. Yeah, I'm going to uh, give a little bit of uh, background to that. So Weijo was founded by a petrol head called Richard Barlow in 2014. Genuinely nice guy. I asked him to speak at a little event I was organising during COVID. He gave an hour of his time. He's just a top quality guy, big fan of F1 racing. What he realised is that F1 relies on data and you know to the nth degree and he realized there was nothing in 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 business to collect data from cars that you and i might drive um so Weijo was born it stands for we and journey so barlow is a really hard worker he traveled around the world he visited the east coast of the us like places like detroit where the car industry is based no fewer than 43 times before he agreed this world-changing deal with General Motors in 2018 when they took a 35% stake in Weijo. The deal was signed on a napkin in a restaurant. Now, more than 13 million vehicles on the platform and investors threw lots of money at uh, Weijo. Their valuation soared. Um, they would know, if they were looking at your car, if you were listening to uh, Magic Gold or you know whatever it was, they would know. He explained to me, he said, look, he said, if there was a traffic junction in Manchester where there are lots of potholes, they can identify where cars are damaging their suspensions. And then they can go to the local authority and they can go this junction on First Avenue needs to be repaired because we've got a problem. So that was absolute gold dust to insurance companies, to, um, you know, to local authorities. Everybody loved them. And that's the reason why people were throwing money at them. And as I mentioned, 13 million vehicles were regularly on their platform. The problem was this, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the demise of Silicon Valley Bank, the wider general economic malaise, the, the, um, the problems with Ukraine, energy prices, all those things conspired to spook the market. And that really had a massive effect on Weijo, which went on the American stock exchange, the NASDAQ. Weijo's growth was all predicated on being able to raise money because they were loss making. They were talking about, you know, narrowing the losses and becoming break even possibly in 2024. The problem is Weijo generated income of 8.4 million US dollars in 2022. At the same time, they lost $159 million. Now the investors took flight and said, you know what, we don't want to invest in a high growth, loss-making tech company like Weijo, and they basically pulled the plug. And that's the reason why Weijo announced their intention to appoint administrators, a local firm of administrators as well. 
bad day for the Northwest, bad day for the UK tech center, uh, tech sector generally. I mean, I don't know what you think, Michael, but I did a video on it. I don't know if you saw it. I did a video outside Weijo's offices. It went down really well. You should try it. Where did you get the idea to do that? Got it from you, Michael, as you know. Uh, well, I'm more concerned about uh, jobs in the tech center. Manchester's really, in particular, because it's a Manchester headquarter business, based in the ABC building, the same building as uh, Open Money. Um, I just hope people are all right for jobs. And it's good to see that uh, Manchester Digital, the trade association that looks after tech companies in this city, uh, their managing director, Katie Gallagher, has uh, thrown her bit uh, behind all efforts to um, find jobs for people and offer us a broken house. I think the problem with stories like this, though, is that companies, I spoke to somebody who'd been on, worked at Weijo, had been on holiday when he found out the second to last day of his holiday and he's not being paid this month. No, it's terrible. And stuff that's like that. the suddenness of it. Really sucks stuff like that, doesn't it? Anyway, what, what else is going on? Well, we're going to talk about music, aren't we? Oh, indeed, indeed. So um, we both correctly predicted the result of the FA Cup final. You 12 said, seconds, 12 seconds. I know. Yeah, I swore at that point. Yeah. Stood up and went, it's the end of the month, so I revealed the winner of my lunch of the month Instagram thing that I do. The winner was Cambodia in Stockport's Produce Hall. I took my friend Nick, who loves Asian food and used to live in Southeast Asia, and he gave a big tick to the Cambodian fish curry, the sriracha cauliflower, and the wings and spring rolls. I did another story about an independent clothes shop in Manchester shutting up shop. Fear not though, Chris, it's not Slater's menswear, it's yeah. Lanigan and Hume. Following the trail of Oipaloi and Whipples in putting the closed sign up. But Phil Lanigan is upping sticks and moving his business closer to the epicenter of Cheshire's Golden Triangle in Nutsford, mm. even though he lives himself in Castlefield. It's a casualty, he said, of the working from home culture and the damage that that's doing to the city centre, which I think is a really interesting issue that affects lots of northern cities where professional people work during the week very much like this one yeah. what do you think yeah i agree i don't think there's a, a harder profession than being an independent clothes shop i think you've not got the buying power and um, you've not got the marketing spend of the bigger brands as well it, it definitely concert season isn't it i noticed uh, uh jen uh, jen williams posted that if you live in manchester on a good breeze you can hear loads of concerts from your back garden as well yes all at the same time i had a friend go to the coldplay concert at the etihad last week and I'm said it was sure brilliant you did chris mm. i'm sure you did i did i did coldplay yeah. <laughs> you like coldplay i don't like him no i'm not a fan of him but, <laughs> okay but the guy who went he's not a fan of him he said what a brilliant live act fine good i saw them a few years ago i thought they were very capable but it's not really my sort of thing um oh, there's an exhibition on at the refuge in manchester by rick kelly a really great photographer and listener to my music radio show he had a launch for his new exhibition at the refuge it's well worth checking out beautiful fantastic picture of amy amy winehouse that he took um he also praised my insta posting skills something i'm quite good at less said how However, about my LinkedIn formatting game, which we'll uh, move swiftly on. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, oh, I missed the uh, Whit Bands marching, which I sometimes have been to in the past. They have these bands that march in place, like Oldham, Glossop, and all the different towns in the constellation around Tameside. They have marching bands. It's uh, great. Well, if great you fun. want to catch up with what happened there, all you need to do is look at the Twitter account of Stockport MP Nav Mishra. Oh, was, did he go? <laughs> Well, I mean, I assume he did. I mean, oh, I'm just thinking, actually, I'm touching on a nerve again. Are you still blocked? 
I am still blocked, yeah. I'm not blocked, actually. And just a serious thing that uh, Nav Mishra posted at the weekend. He mentioned it was the 56th anniversary of the um, Stockport air disaster, which I knew nothing about. June the 4th, 1967, a plane packed with holidaymakers crashed into Wasteland near Stockport Town Centre, killing 72 of the 84 passengers on board. And like for somebody like myself who was born five years after that, I never knew. Yeah, it's incredible. There's a there's a whole little memorial to it just off Stockport Town Centre, uh, in an area where they've now built uh, built building some new houses. But yeah, yeah, it's it, it's big big thing in Stockport. That anyway, what else have you been up to? Well, I spotted a new TV program. I stumbled across it on ITVX. Um, yeah, it's called Vincent with Ray Winston. Have you seen it? And that lady is also in um, Scott and Bailey, uh, Surian Jones. Surian Jones. Surian Jones. Yeah. It's 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 2005. It's all filmed around Manchester. Oh wow! And if you like Manchester, you see how Manchester's changed just by watching it. Now, I had a really surreal experience last week. So I've been a journalist for 31 years. I found myself the subject of the story Ooh. when I fronted a skin cancer campaign after my own experience. Incidentally, I'm actually going to climb back under a rock fairly soon because I'm not comfortable talking about personal stuff. I'm not. But um, I did it because I wanted to raise awareness about it. BBC Northwest Tonight picked up on it and uh, they turned it into a news story which went onto the BBC's website. Great. And it was one of the best read stories on the BBC. Um, I'm getting messages from people saying, you know, blimey, Chris, are you all right? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But my modeling career's dried up. Um, TV recommendations. I watched another program to start a new series called Changing Ends. It's a semi-autobiographical sitcom about Alan Carr's childhood in Northampton. His dad is the football coach. Um, uh, it's not... Uh, Graham Carr. Graham Carr. He was at yeah. Newcastle as well. The show belongs to the young Alan Carr. I think he's only 11. This lad called Oliver Savell. He is absolutely amazing. As good a performance as I've seen by a young actor. Just brilliant. You must see it. Fantastic. Yeah, right. Well, that's all for episode five of season four of Northern Spin. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management and sponsor the podcast, please get in touch. We're on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Give us feedback on Spotify. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on YouTube. Thank you, as ever, to What Media for recording this podcast. Special mention to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. And normal service has been revealed, uh, has resumed. My name is Happy Clappy, Chris McGuire. <laughs>